The Old West had a way of turning men into legend. Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday were created by men who lived on after them. This is the story of a man who wrote his own legend, constructing it so well that almost the only accurate account of his life is found in the dusty pages of a court transcript. This is the story of Tom Mix, the myth on horseback. Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans. We're back on the film frontier. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today we're going to talk about some silent westerns featuring Tom Mix. Uh, we're looking at today The Great K&A Train Robbery from 1926 and Outlaws of Red River of 1927, uh, both directed by Lewis Seiler. And we were fortunate enough to see it at this year's TCM Film Festival, the 10th TCM Film Festival here in Hollywood, at the beautiful Legion Theater at Post 43. Newly restored. Yeah. And where we saw a new restoration of Outlaws of Red River done by MoMA, Museum right. of Modern Art. We got to hear a great inter- introduction by MoMA's uh, Ann Mora, and then live accompaniment by Ben Modell, who we'll actually have an interview with later. Yeah, it was it was great seeing the films with uh, live music. It yeah. was it was a different experience. It was a real experience. Yeah. we're really lucky, and it's so interesting. You kind of forget about the accompaniment <clears throat> at a right. certain point, and I mean that as a complete compliment to Ben. <laughs> It's just, you, you feel like it's part of the movie. Right. Know? So I thought we'd start out uh, talking about just Tom Mix and who he is and his place in the Western. He was at one time the undisputed king of the Cowboys, a mm-hmm. uh, huge box office star in the 1920s. Paved the way for a lot of features of the Western mm-hmm. that continued on through yes. the rest of the century. He kind of set the standard for a certain type of Western. Um, and during the height of uh, Tom's popularity, he and his publicity machine had concocted a bio that was uh, as fanciful as the characters he played. That's the truth. Every word. Give or take a liar too. <laughs> um, he claimed to have been born in El Paso, Texas, was a former Texas Ranger, fought in the Boxer Rebellion in China, the Boer War in Africa, and the Spanish-American War as a Rough Rider. Uh, he said he was a U.S. Marshal, and he rode with Pancho Villa in Mexico. He's the ultimate American adventurer. Yes. Yeah. And none of this was true. What? <laughs> the uh, great stuntman Yakima Kanut, who people may know from Stagecoach and the Chariot Race and Ben-Hur, among many other things. We're big Yakima Kanut fans yes. around here. Uh, he called Tom the goddamnedest liar I ever saw. <laughs> A perfect trait for a filmmaker and actor. Yes. Uh, He had no qualms about uh, fabricating his life. He was actually born Thomas Hezekiah Mix in 1880 in Mix Run, Pennsylvania. Hezekiah is quite a middle name. Yes. (laughs) He had always dreamed as a kid of joining the circus or a Wild West show. He did join the army in 1898 to fight in the Spanish-American War. Uh, but he was not a rough rider. He was in the artillery, and he actually never saw combat. Um, but he did ride in Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural procession with the rough riders, uh, and that's sort of where people started uh, thinking he was a rough rider, and he let them think that. He actually went AWOL in the Army in 1902 to get married, but never returned and was never court-martialed. Um, he ended up being married five times. He wound up in Guthrie, Oklahoma, where he got a job as a cowboy on the 101 Ranch, which at the time was one of the largest ranches in the nation. And they had a Wild West show, and that's where Tom got to do that and do a lot of trick riding and roping. And he was an excellent rider. Uh, He wasn't really so much a cowboy on the ranch, like punching cattle, but he could show people around and entertain the dudes that came to visit the ranch. I think he was an extremely acclaimed rider at the time. He was, yes. all sorts of awards and... 
And he actually won two national roping championships in 1909 and 1910. So a consummate entertainer from the yes, beginning. Yes, he had that in his blood yeah. from the very beginning. And one of his associates from one of the Wild West shows introduced him to William Selig, who ran the film company Selig Polyscope. And they cast him in a film that shot, uh, I think they took a month to shoot it, which was an extremely long production time for that, for that era. And once they got back with the footage, they came back and signed him to a contract. Because uh, they were uh, so impressed with him. Well. He stayed with Selig uh, Polyscope for a while until they sort of entered financial trouble. And then he, Tom decided it was time for him to go. And he approached William Fox of Fox Studios. And he waited for him outside his office several times, dressed in his outlandish cowboy garb. Until Fox finally noticed him. And then they he showed him uh, some of his short films that he made. And they signed him to a contract. And Fox, which was a major operation, had much greater distribution around the nation than a Selig Polyscope. So Tom became like an instant hit. Mm -hmm. Tom and Tony. Yes. Tony the Wonder Horse, yes, who we'll we talk will... more about later. <laughs> we will get he in... is equal, if not greater, standing yes. in, in his star power. He is he is uh, right up there shoulder to shoulder yeah. with Tom. So Tom was a big hit, and Fox even built him a 12-acre backlot with a western town, Indian village, a fake desert, so he could shoot everything he needed there. This was in Edendale, California, which is now the Los Angeles neighborhood of Silver Lake, for mm -hmm. anyone who knows that. Quickly became the most popular cowboy star of the era, surpassing his only real rival, William S. Hart. And he and Hart made very different types of westerns. Yeah. Um, Hart was much more serious and tried to make realistic westerns, and his hero was always scowling and serious. <laughs> And Tom was always about the fun and uh, the adventure and the stunts. Yeah. And he liked to be like a hero to little kids. Mm -hmm. And he didn't drink or gamble or anything. Right. Uh, one time a screenwriter presented Tom with a, a little bit more out there script. And it was promptly rejected by Tom because he said, The kids wouldn't understand. You've got me drinking and gambling. I can't do anything the boys and girls don't expect of me. The role I play has to be a man of high ideals. <laughs> He was more than just an actor. He was also the friend and counselor of every boy who saw his pictures or heard his radio program. For always he taught a down-to-earth code of living based on courage, honesty, and fair play. Will Rogers, who actually knew Tom back in his days on the 101 Ranch, said, uh, Tom's smart like Henry Ford. He makes what people want. You never hear him talking about bigger and better pictures. He uses the same old recipe. A little love, a little danger, not too much story, not so much preaching. He never tries to outmix Tom Mix. <laughs> Tom knows if he surpasses his last picture, he'll have to surpass the next one. That's a great quote. Yeah. But as Tom uh, became a bigger star, he had, you know huge salary uh yeah i have the at the time at the the height of his fame he was earning about seventeen thousand five hundred a week which is about uh two hundred eighteen thousand today yeah a week a week that's that's crazy yeah but fox began to think he was costing them too much money exhibitors theater owners around the nation were sort of complaining about his films being more simplistic and not really having a lot of story and so they decided to start grooming uh, buck jones as a cheaper alternative to take his place who was another silent cowboy actor mix kind of saw the writing on the wall and left fox for uh, fbo studios in 1928 which at the time was run by joseph p kennedy father of john kennedy the president he was there briefly making only five films but he felt like he was back in his low budget days and was very unhappy there he he said of uh, kennedy that he was a tight-ass money-crazed son of a bitch so he didn't think too much of him he ended up losing a lot of money in the stock market crash in 29 yeah he before that he got extremely rich had yes. a huge mansion i think on laurel canyon yeah like a six acre estate yeah. or something yeah he constructed a vast six acre estate in hollywood that surpassed even mary pickford's home a winding road led to an immense stucco house 
which was surrounded by a tennis court, swimming pool, a seven-car garage, and, of course, a stable for Tony. Inside, there was a glass-enclosed foyer and a huge two-story trophy room filled with expensive saddles, carvings, Indian relics, antique guns, and bows and arrows. But despite this, Tom was obviously not happy. He often disappeared at the height of large parties, leaving his guests to carry on alone. He explained that when he got tired, he went to bed. My guests are my friends, he said, and if they don't like it, they won't come back. Friends don't disapprove. People always told him how rich he was and how awesome that must be, but he said, oh, it's not as great as it's cracked up to be. Because a, a fellow can only sleep in one bed at a time and we only wear one shirt and even ride only one horse. Right. <laughs> he even, at, the, at this time in, in his career, had all of his cars supposedly fitted with custom-manufactured tires, specifically molded to leave tracks with the initials TM in the road. <laughs> That's class wow, when you that... <laughs> got personalized tires just to like leave your mark. Literally. That is star power. Yeah. So as the sound era came on, he ended up leaving Hollywood and went back to doing uh, circus performing and, wild, and a Wild West act. He did that for a couple of years, and then he got a, received an offer from Universal Pictures to come back and make uh, some sound pictures in 1932. Although, if I can interrupt you and go back to the circuses yes. for a minute. He wasn't doing so badly in the circuses either, just to go back to his, yeah. his riches. I, I have that he was paid 20000 a week in the circus, which Amazing. is almost 300000 a week today. That's crazy. As a headliner for the circus. And was given a private railroad car for himself and a private railroad card for Tony, <laughs> the Wonder Horse. Tony deserves it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but continue. Yes, uh, so he went back to uh, Hollywood in 32 uh, to work at Universal, where he made um, nine sound films there. And then in 1935, he ended his film career doing a 15-episode serial called The Miracle Rider for uh, Mascot Pictures. He and Tony had always done their own stunts in all the films. But the injuries were taking a lot longer for Tom to heal, mm -hmm. and he was, you know, getting past his days of, of doing all those just stunts. So he retired from the motion picture industry at that time. Supposedly, Raoul Walsh had originally wanted Tom to play the lead in The Big Trail in 1930, which was a big-budget, widescreen uh, sound picture, which would have brought him back to Fox Studios. It's unclear if he was ever actually offered it, and maybe mix, or, uh, William Fox was against it. But that role eventually went to a then-unknown John Wayne, and the movie flopped, and Wayne would spend the rest of his decade in low-budget B-Westerns until Stagecoach. But it's interesting to think um, what had happened if Mix had played that yeah. part. And supposedly, uh, he tried to get John Ford to cast him in his The Iron Horse, which is Ford's like first real big-budget Western in 1925. And supposedly, he has a cameo in it as, a, uh, as a, one of the railroad workers without any dialogue, just as a little nod to... Uh, Tom Mix. And Ford and Mix had made a few films together and were friends during that era. And then in 1933, jumping back a little bit, uh, Ralston Perina produced a radio show called Tom Mixed Ralston Straight Shooters. Mix never participated in any way. I love that. <laughs> but there are tons of actors that played yeah, there Tom were Mix. At least three actors that played him over yeah. the run of the series. It, and it lasted long after his death. Mm -hmm. Outside a lonely and abandoned trapper's cabin in the woods near Three Forks. Ed Walton has demonstrated his priceless working model of the rocket parachute to that mountain of flesh, the criminal known as Diamond, only to have lost it high above the treetops. As we join them now, Diamonds is forcing Ed back to the cabin to build another rocket. Unknown to them, Tom Mix is waiting for them there. Listen as Ed says. Here's the cabin. You'd better come in and cool off, Diamond. And I'd appreciate it if you'd take that gun out of my back. Once we're inside. Go ahead. 
Ava, come out here at once. Something frightful has happened. Something most unexpected. Something most unexpected, Diamond. What's the name of Mick? Tom Mick. Tom. Drop that gun, Diamond. Oh. I said drop it, not raise it. Shooting it out of his hand saves me the trouble of taking it away from him. How? 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 How did we find your hideout? This. The rocket parachute. The working bottle of the rocket parachute. Oh, Tom. I was searching for you through the woods when I saw the rocket parachute floating over the trees. The wind caught it after I shot it into the air. Yeah, I know. Afraid I broke some of the strings when I tried to bring it down, Ed. But I reckon you can fix that easily enough. You bet I can, Tom. In fact, I'm going to have lots of working models. Well, I reckon this is the end of the trail for you, Diamond. I wouldn't be too sure, Max. Empty words, Diamond. This time we've got you with a good. Oh, yes. Quite. You got me, Max. The question is, can you keep me? Uh? Strange and exciting things happen tomorrow. So don't fail to be with Tom Mix for the next episode of Mysterious Parachute. Straight shooters, you'll get a tremendous thrill out of this sensational rocket parachute Tom Mix is offering to send you. Just imagine being the very first in your neighborhood to own this amazing model. There's nothing to assemble. He was the star of many comic book series uh, well into the 1950s after he was dead. In 1935, the governor of Texas named him an honorary Texas Ranger. Um, And then Mix would die in 1940, October of 1940, in a car crash uh, near Florence, Arizona. And there is supposedly a marker there on the highway of a sad horse uh, where it marks the spot where he died. Tom Mix wash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Tony ended up outliving Tom by four years. And Mix had starred in around 280 films and directed over 100 Maybe some some people say the number is higher. It's hard to know. Like the majority of his films were actually lost in a fire on the Fox lot in 1937, I believe. And there's very few of his films actually survive. And then another uh, fact about Tom Mix, uh, a lot of people may know this already, but he was a pallbearer at Wyatt Earp's funeral. Um, they had become friends in the 20s uh, when Earp was in Los Angeles consulting on westerns and, and things like that. Yeah, I just want to kind of look at that full bio of Tom Mix, because I see him as a very classically tragic fallen star character. Yeah. That he kind of comes from humble beginnings, but then the legend becomes greater than the real story. Yeah. And he becomes a success, but yet always has a yearning for this different field of circus and Wild West shows. That seems to be where his heart is, and where he always wanted to be a success, but never really was. Right. Never attained the, the heights that he did as a... A film star right and kind of got over his head in riches used his money poorly lost it all had yes. to get back in but then found himself out of his element with like competing stars like john wayne and so forth right the change in, in, sound in sound coming pictures, into the movies yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you sort of wonder hear rumors that well maybe his voice wasn't meant for sound maybe it's there's kind of a reason like a lot of those other silent film stars didn't make the transition right and then even the fact that he dies in a car accident like that's a classic <laughs> classic uh, movie star movie uh, star yeah death yeah. <laughs> I, I just think it's interesting that he sort of falls into all those tropes it's yeah it's true he's like the sort of classic hollywood star story um, and and just to hit back on on making the transition to silent to sound there like i said there were rumors that his voice wasn't made for for sound that 
rumors that he injured his vocal cords or right, something. Right, right. What could make it or that his voice was too high pitched or something. But as we said, there are some sound films with him and he sounds Yeah, he fine. sounds perfectly yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing unusual about his voice or I anything. I mean, maybe there is a, a problem in just the acting style and transitioning from silent to right, sound. Right, right. From what I saw in clips of his sound movies, he does use his face more than right. a sound actor does and, and maybe doesn't use the dialogue as much. I noticed that in the little bit that I watched, it seemed like other lesser characters would give a lot of the dialogue. They would give a lot of the exposition and he would just kind of stand there. Yeah. Um, maybe he just didn't feel comfortable speaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was used to his old way of doing things. Right. Oh, also to, to fill in the, the myth of the fallen movie star, he had what five ex-wives five ex-wives yes <laughs> yes he liked to portray this image to the kids of america that he was this straight arrow you know doesn't drink doesn't smoke he's you know and i think he had a problem with alcohol yes he did and... yeah <laughs> yeah he he was not afraid to let his uh publicity uh, team mm-hmm. create this image of him yeah. yeah but he was an amazing horseman and uh the stunts that he and tony perform are, are yeah. crazy i mean I mean, you hear him compared to like a Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible or something doing his own stunts. Right. Yeah. At the intro of the TCM Fest, one of the people spoke who spoke uh, mentioned the sort of Tom Cruise as a comparison, and we'll get into some of the stunts later as we talk about the yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think that's really a bad comparison. It's yeah. It's very impressive. Yes. And, but a lot of that, I think, also comes down to Tony the Wonder Horse. Yes. <laughs> who is in amazing it's quite a horse yes just the talent i've never seen i was so impressed with tony and i think audiences at the time were as well as he became like we said as equal if not greater than a star than uh tom mix yes they supposedly worked together very well i mean he didn't tom didn't like grow up with this horse or anything but supposedly he had trained him so well or whatever that uh, he could just pat Tony on the nose and say, now, look, Tony, here's the way we're going to do this. And then that's how they did it. <laughs> and he could communicate these little signals, just like little nudges that Tony would perform. And, I mean, Tony does can handle, like, punchlines and close-ups <laughs> and as as well as the big stunts, as well as big jumps and, and right. what happened. all the action. Right. Yeah. The Fox Films press team continued to spin rumors about Tony. They, they kind of anthropomorphized Tony into this greater, almost human star. Uh, they sp- spread rumors that Tom refused to let anyone else sit on Tony's back. Uh, they also reported that after a dynamite blast on set injured both rider and horse, Tony wouldn't give in to his pain until he made sure that Tom was alive. When he saw Tom breathing, Tony blacked out. Wow. <laughs> they would be interviewed together, and Tom had trained Tony to answer yes and no. <laughs> And, I mean, he became such a, a star that together Tony and Tom uh, were the eighth movie stars to be uh, put in cement at, at uh, uh, Grauman's, their, their footprints in Grauman's Chinese Theater in 1927, <laughs> which was actually less than a month after William S. Hart. Wow. So they really were in competition yeah. there. You can see mm-hmm. the, the height of their star power. But by the 1930s, when Tony was an older horse right. and had been been through some things... Uh, he had his own stunt doubles that had painted on blazes and white oh, socks yeah. to match uh, match Tony's look. It's sort of amazing that Tony lived this long, despite all of the stunts that he performed. I know. I guess he was never really seriously injured it in sounds, any way. I mean, yeah. it's, like you said, it sounds like Tom kind of bore the brunt of some of the, yeah. the stunts. Um, 
we should say that the American Humane Association didn't start looking into animal labor and on film until 1940. Yeah. <laughs> which was after... <laughs> well, uh, after Tony's Tony career. Retired. Yeah. But really, the popularity of Tony would lead to the popularity of other quote-unquote wonder horses right. like Trigger, Champion, Silver. Silver, yeah. Uh, he had toys, you know, yes. that you could get based on him and... I think Tony even had a few films where he was the lead and Tom was the supporting uh, player in that. I mean, you could even say that that leads to like Air Bud movies or something right. where the dog is the star. <laughs> but uh, as Clarence said, Tony did outlive Tom and uh, would live to be actually 34. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> And this wouldn't have been something that audiences would have known at the time, but there was sort of a break in Tony and Tom's relationship, I hate to say. They continued working together, but when Tom had lost everything in the Great Depression, he was getting some lawsuits as well. He actually gave Tony to his horse trainer to avoid the possibility of losing Tony in a lawsuit. Oh. So he had to give away what he most wow. loved. That's sad. So he wouldn't actually That's lose sad. him. <laughs> but they still got to work together. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I'm sure they were still friends. <laughs> um, so why don't we talk about the two films that we saw? Um, the first one was The Great K&A Train Robbery, and then the second was Outlaws of Red River. So both were directed by Lewis Seiler, and I think The Great K&A Train Robbery in 1926 was Seiler's second feature film. He'd done some shorts before that. Uh, he'd come to Hollywood in 1919, where he'd worked as a quote-unquote gag man and assistant director. He then became associated with Tom Mix in the 1920s, and in the 1930s he went over to Warner Brothers and did a lot of the more gritty uh, gangster films and social drama films. And then you might know his 1943 uh, film Guadalcanal Diary, which is a, a great war film. Right. He would retire from movies in 1958, uh, but would continue to work in TV until his death in 1964. Hmm. Like the Tom Cruise comparison on this one is not far off. Mm -hmm. I mean, he opens the film, he's hanging from a rope, which is strung like from the edge of a cliff down to like Tony's saddle horn on yeah. the at the bottom of this valley. Like imagine one of those like jungle zip line things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he kinda he zips down the rope mm -hmm. right into the saddle and rides off. It's pretty crazy. And it, it looks, you know, it's he's doing it. Yeah. Um he's chasing a train on the horse. He's jumping onto the train and under the train. Like I wasn't even sure how they did that. Where he <laughs> where there's a hobo riding under the train and he jumps under there with him and uh it was crazy. Yeah. Great K&A Train Robbery was filmed in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which was unusual for Mix. He shot most of his films uh, at Mixville or elsewhere on sets in, in Southern California. Right. And, and I, I think that really shows on film that the, the location is working for him. And it feels different than, like, the, the later film yeah. uh, of Red River. Right. Yeah, it looked great. The locations were amazing. This beautiful canyon... Uh, and there's a river and the train's running by the river and uh, they're really well used. I mean, currently Glenwood Springs, little fun facts for you about Glenwood Springs uh -huh. and shout out to our listeners there, <laughs> um, is named the fifth best place to live in America, oh. the most fun town in America, well. one of the most walkable towns in America. And is also where Doc Holliday died. That's, I was going to ask that. Take I thought advantage that. of the hot springs there as, yeah. he was, as he was dying. Interesting. They went out there to shoot. They arrived uh, in Colorado by train mm -hmm. uh, along with Mix's family, 55 cast and crew, and 22 horses. And each day while shooting there, spectators gathered to watch the exterior shots. I'm sure they were delighted to see one of their favorite film stars right. doing these amazing stunts. I, probably, I can't imagine. I know. It's probably a huge thrill. Yeah. I would love to do that now. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about the crowds because it's a silent movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyways, this film, um, 
and the plot is basically Tom makes poses as a bandit to help bring in a gang of train robbers. Uh, it's very white hat, black hat, yeah. simplistic kind of storytelling, but it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, the audience we saw it with seemed to really be engaged in oh, yeah. the stunts and just the 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 just the fun of the movie. I think there was a woman next to you that was just cackling yes. out loud every <laughs> every other minute. But. She was really into it, and then of course the live accompaniment uh, was amazing with it. Yes. Um, really made a difference. I thought this film also supposedly has John Wayne as an extra. Wayne and uh, Tom Mix had met in 1925 when the USC football coach brought jo- young John Wayne and Marion Morrison and a couple of other players from the team to meet Tom Mix and help them get jobs on the Fox lot. Wayne would end up getting a job as a prop man for Fox for $35 a week, which I imagine was probably pretty good. <laughs> um, but Wayne later in life would claim, uh, you know, years after Tom Mix's death, that Mix had treated him unkindly. He claimed that Tom gave him the cold shoulder on the lot and promised him a role in the great K&A train robbery, but didn't. He ended up only being an extra. I didn't notice him in the film. Yeah. yeah. He also claimed that Mix only offered the USC players jobs so he could get good seats at the at the football game, <laughs> and this was probably true, um, and that the first time that they went to the lot, Mix told the guard to kick them off the lot that he never promised them jobs. Uh, once when a reporter asked Tom Mix what he thought of John Wayne, he said, the only Christian words I could use are no talent upstart. <laughs> so they clearly uh, did not like each other. And I'm sure later in their careers, they developed a kind of rivalry once True. Wayne started dominating more. And... Well, you think about it, though. Wayne uh, didn't really become a major star until 1939, mm. a year before Mix's death. Yeah. He was, I mean, he was in B-movies kind of doing Tom Mix-type roles right. all through the 30s, so I'm sure that didn't make him happy. Yeah. But he hadn't become the superstar that he would. But it's interesting to think about because it was... If Wayne hadn't met Tom Mix, he wouldn't have been on the Fox lot. He never would have run into John Ford and Raul Walsh, who launched his career, yeah. Walsh in The Big Trail, and then Ford you know, had, him, had used him as extras prior to that, and then, of course, stagecoach later. So, you know, you have these two giant cowboy stars mm-hmm. and their paths crossing, so it's interesting, I think. But yeah, this film uh, is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I was going to say it also features uh, the leading lady in the film who plays the daughter of the train owner. Yeah. Um, who... Tom is going to save, and he sort of falls, falls in love for with, her yeah. at the end. I mean, it, the romance is it's, a little weak. Yeah. It's, it's ultimately just a little kiss, I think, at the end. Yeah. Um, but she is played by Dorothy Dwan, who is the original Dorothy in the 1925 Wizard of Oz. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then the second film, Outlaws of Red River from 1927. In this film, Mix plays a Texas Ranger who's known as the Falcon for his keen tracking skills. And he's out to avenge the murder of his foster parents by outlaws when he was a kid on a wagon train. And they kidnapped his his foster sister, and he's been looking for her ever since. And it, it was sort of interesting to me to see the the flashbacks to him and Mary, the, the leading lady, yeah. and in their youth, and then going back to present day. I mean, I think it shows a more advanced filmmaking technique. And... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the filmmaking in the 20s was pretty advanced. Yeah. I mean, even though these particular films are much more simplistic stories, there was a lot of artistic work being done in the 20s. Uh, and I think people maybe forget that or don't realize that. Yeah, I mean, for people that are less familiar with silent films, I mean, I, I am as well. Th- these films, they hold up for modern audiences. Just, I mean, they, they are simplistic plots, but they feature you know close-ups and tracking shots and and comic relief relief and and yeah as as ben model the accompaniment will uh 
say later that they're not silent films. Don't right. be deceived by that term. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the audience was really engaged through both of those films. Mm-hmm. This film a little more straightforward, a little more traditional western than the previous one. Not quite as much fun, I thought. And maybe a few logic holes as well. Yeah. Like, there's some confusion over why Mary doesn't remember that she had a different father when she was like Clearly, nine like, years old, yeah, six, six years old, six, nine years old, yeah, like somewhere in that area, and forgets that even though she's lived most of her life with her stepfather, she had or not stepfather, her adopted, adopted yeah. father. She doesn't remember her original father yet. She remembers this guy Tom, right, being with them, with. yeah, yeah, and then it doesn't hold. How, how they they kind of recognize each other as if there couldn't be any other woman in the territory <laughs> named Mary. Right. Like. <laughs> it doesn't hold up under much scrutiny, but uh, but it was a, it was a fun film. Yeah, there, there, there's some great gags in both the films, really. Like yeah, in the, in the previous film, I loved the hobo character. Yes, he was a great character. Yeah. Um, some great stunts, like the I think it was in the first film where Tom rides his his horse into the house of the railroad owner and jumps out a door into a swimming pool yeah. on the horse, and Tony just seems fine from that, hops right out. <laughs> There's a bit where Tony has to uh, rescue Tom, and he goes and gets his picks up his uh, six guns with his teeth and rides off to to rescue Tom. Yeah, know, definitely in yeah. the second film, I think Tony's the hero that yeah. saves the day. <laughs> Uh, Mary sends him off to go save Tom. I mean, to save Tom. Right. Well, there's a lot of a lot of great riding scenes. Like down, they're riding on the top of these high ridge lines, and then right mm-hmm. down the side of these steep cliffs, and yeah, just skillfully Tony can, done. Can handle the change in altitude pretty yes. well. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'd only seen one Tom Mix film prior to this, Riders of the Purple Sage, which I remember liking. Um, and these were the first two for yes, you, right? Yeah. yeah. And we should also talk about, I guess, uh, Tom's look. He is. Flamboyant, yes. maybe, is he... a good word for him. <laughs> Most of the characters in the film look very realistic. I would even say, you know, some of them might even look very normal in modern world. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the hobo character, I think, could be a Brooklyn Hemp- That's hipster. That's true. <laughs> but Tom has gigantic white hat, mm-hmm. uh, these fancy cowboy shirts and boots and pants. Just really ridiculous yeah. looking outfit. But If he... anything, maybe the, the leading ladies are a little bit plain yeah looking that's true i mean there are no marilyn monroe's or whatever but he was all about the flash and the look i I feel like he really wants to stand out definitely i I don't think he handles jealousy well is my (laughs) that might be (laughs) you might be onto something yeah he would even write off his wardrobe uh because it was so specialized and so unique that he was able to write off like i forget the amount now but it was it was some egregious egregious yes yeah (laughs) Because um, they aren't clothes you could wear in everyday life, oh, no. for sure. Yeah, and, and definitely not in everyday cowboy. Work. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they'd be very practical. If anything, his look I think led to perhaps the singing cowboy. Yeah, look. the rhinestone cowboy. Yeah, the, yeah, that kind of like Roy the Rogers suits. Those, the... yeah, that's probably I would say too part of the evolution of Tom Mix's yeah. look. Yeah, definitely not like William S. Hart was a much more serious, straight, realistic type of western, and Tom was all about the fun and. The Flash. Yeah. Yeah. So having talked about the films, I think now might be a good time to introduce Ben Modell. We were fortunate enough to get him on the phone for the podcast. Ben is one of the nation's leading silent film accompanists, performing on both piano and theater organ around the country for the past 30 plus years. He is a resident film accompanist at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and at the Library of Congress's Packard Campus Theater. His scores can be heard on numerous releases and he has an indie DVD label, Undercrank Productions, that releases rare or lost silent films. This was Ben's third TCM festival he's appeared at. 
And as I was watching these movies, I was just fascinated by this guy and his performance and had to know, had to know more about his unique career and process. So take a listen to our interview with him and enjoy. So how are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being on. You have a unique career. Do you want to tell us more about how you got into composing music for silent film and performing it live? Sure, sure. I, I grew up being really crazy about silent movies uh, from the time I was a toddler, apparently. And I was interested in filmmaking and was also doing some co very light collecting in 8mm as I grew up and also took piano lessons. And when I went to film school as a film production major at NYU, they were showing the silent movies in dead silence. This is before home video. So what they had were 16mm prints that had no tracks on them. So I figured, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but it's got to be better than nothing. And uh, my sophomore year, I went to the head of the department, uh, the cinema studies department, a guy named Brian Winston. I proposed that I try accompanying the silent films, and he said he loved the idea. Oh, we must have we must have a, a company to the silent. Films. What a wonderful idea! So I began playing. Uh, for the film history classes in, in college. Luckily, uh, I was able to sort of slowly ease my way into it. Most people I know who start doing this start off, you know, the local film club or some concern or some theater wants to do Hunchback of Notre Dame or uh, a Phantom of the Opera or The General or something. Uh, and that's their first gig. And I started off with the Lumiere Brothers you know, train pulling into the station. So these little 60-second actualities and were then worked up to things like the crowd. So I'm playing for, by, by my junior year, I'm playing for two or three classes a week, uh, both for the introductory class and then for Bill Ever William K. Everson's classes. And I learned, I'm kind of self-taught, but I also met a guy named Lee Irwin who was a movie organist in the 1920s. And was still playing in New York City at a repertory cinema that had a Wurlitzer in it. And he became a friend and a mentor. And I just, you know, asked him questions over and over and over. How about this? How about that? What do I do for this scene? What do I do for that scene? Should I try this? And he would answer my questions. And that's that's how that's the basic origin story of how I got started doing this. My main idea was that I was going to be a filmmaker, making comedy films. And then at some point that wafted into doing stand-up and improv comedy. And about 20 years ago or so, I decided to just concentrate on the silent film work because I realized, looking back in my life, that anything I'd ever done with silent film just worked itself out. It was the, I noticed the path of least resistance was anything with silent film, whereas with with making making films and doing comedy, I was banging my head against the wall and I needed a break. And it's sort of snowballed very, very slowly, but it's snowballed into this thing where it's it's a, what I do full time between accompanying films, traveling to do it, uh, as well as the uh, the line of DVDs that I produce and distribute. It's become it's what I do full time, and I don't know how many people do this full time currently. And it's certainly a job most people don't haven't had full time since around 1930. Yeah, I'm sure you must yeah. be on the forefront of, of a newer movement in that area. I, I, I suppose, yeah. When you were when you were a film student and playing for those for those films, were you just improvising scores or how did you approach that? I was mainly improvising. I started out using music that I had at hand. The 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 university library had a copy of the a book 
published in 1925 that was put together by a guy named Erno Rappé, who was one of the top conductors in New York City, uh, published by G. Shermer. And, and it was a selection of some of the mood music cues that were published in the silent film era, as well as a lot of classical music. This book was re- reprinted in the 70s. And I, I started in, in it, it was a pretty interesting way that it was laid out is that on the margins on the left and right hand side, it had a list of all the moods and characteristics things and a page number. So if you were playing something, you suddenly had an airplane scene, you would go to find the word airplane. See, it was page 37 and flip to it. So I, I started out with that a little bit. It didn't really give me a guideline on how to construct a film score. And about four or five years ago, a book was published called the, the music of the silent films, which I uh, put together for a company called Music Sales, which is a large music publishing firm that now owns Shermer's, that does the same thing. It has about 50 different pieces of silent film era mood music used. But the, I, I wrote a section on the book that gives you a, a basic how-to for scoring a film, do's and don'ts, and, and how to use the music that's in the book. But I, I started out a mix of improvisation and some written music and just got better and better at improvising. Luckily, I had the fact that nobody was really paying attention. They were watching the movie and the lights were out. I mean, that helped. is the best thing is you're, you're doing your job when no one notices you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's another film accompanist I know, a guy named Stuart Oderman, who passed away a few years ago. He, he was one of my cohorts at, at uh, he accompanied films at MoMA for many, many years. But he said that, you know, silent film accompaniment, it's like the air conditioning. When it's working, you don't notice it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, do you want to tell us more about your process of composition today? Sure. It's kind of a mix of pre-composition and composition and performance, which another another uh, film accompanist I, I, I knew who passed away at the age of 99, I think, a couple of years ago, he, he said he called it music of momentary significance. Um, it's a mix of preparing by watching the film and taking copious notes on the story so that I have uh, notes in front of me that let me know what's about to happen, what's coming up, and where I can highlight or use boldface to remind myself of where themes come in. There are things where if there's a sudden shift or there are gunshots, they come out of nowhere. Like there's that moment in Outlaws of Red River where somebody has inadvertently uh, placed a, a pistol in a in a like a fireplace that's lit, and all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, to the characters on screen, pow, 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 and so I have in my notes uh, the two or three things that happened before that with the word "watch" in all caps, so I know it's coming, and I so I can because if you don't. If you're going to do something, not in terms of doing sound effects, but musically matching the the excitement, if you miss it, if you're late, the audience is aware of it. So you've either got to nail it or just don't do it. So uh, I'll watch the film ahead of time. If I, you know, sometimes the themes will occur to me while I'm pacing back and forth in the projection booth. Sometimes they happen during the show and sometimes... They'll happen while I'm watching the film and I'll jot them down on music manuscript paper and bring them with me. So on average, how many times will you watch a film before you perform? On average, once. Oh, okay. Oh. And I don't I don't like to rehearse. I don't know why, but at least for me, it actually makes it, the score go worse if I practice 
silent film is so experiential. There's this Venn diagram of if you of where where me and the audience, the audience and the screen, and me and the screen, those three things overlap. That's what silent film is. And without a couple hundred people in my living room, I'm not going to get that same feeling of the show itself happening. And that is a big part of it. You know, we accompanists are always sensing out of the back of our heads the vibe in the room and whether people are focused or they're not or they're into it or if you have to do things musically to draw people up into the screen a little bit more or if you can back off a little because they're just really with it and it's just cooking. It's a mix of having a, you know, a few themes that you don't overuse, maybe three or four times, and you weave them together through improvisation during the show. Sometimes the intro to the film will inform me in a way that uh, I couldn't have prepared. Someone will say something about the film or about the star that will make me think, oh, that this is really a film that's that has this as its main theme, and I will adjust as I'm going through the film uh, based on what someone has said, whether it was uh, whether it was Scott McGee or Ann Mora who introduced the Tom Mix films, or by staying open to that. And this is something where my comedy improvisation uh training really kicks in where like oh just oh this you know something you'll just latch on to like i had a kind of an idea of what i was going to do for the two tom mix films but just as the second one started something just landed more for me than it had in any preparation i had done that this is a different feel than great k and a train robbery which has a lot more f- there's a lot more fun to it whereas outlaws of red river is a little bit more of a sort of standard Western with some light moments in it. They're both directed by the same guy, I think, but they have a slightly different feel to them. And so I, I made a, a minor adjustment uh, to help the audience get into the, the world of the film. I mean, let's go ahead and, and get more into these particular Tom Mix films. How did you get connected? Well, I've been accompanying silent films at MoMA for many, many years. I, I played my first show right after I got out of college in the mid 80s. I just got an email in December asking me if I was available and interested in playing for these two films. I played at the festival last year and also I played at the TCM Classic Film Festival during its second year. I'm not exactly sure who suggested I play. It wasn't me. I mean, I every every year when they, they announce the theme, I just, my mind goes to work and I pitch a, a few different films that fit and uh, I have not gotten any of them onto the programming, but what's been <laughs> what's been what's been fun is that the last two years, this year and last year, the silent film that I was asked to play for had nothing to do with the theme. You know, this year, right. two, two <laughs> westerns and it's romance in the movies. That's why when I, I got interviewed by Alicia Malone at the red carpet thing, and she asked me a question about, oh, why do you think it is that we're so obsessed with romance in the movies? I was like, ah, I'm here to talk about Tom Mix. <laughs> and, and last last year, the theme was the written word or something like that. And I played, I played for show people with Marion Davies. Yeah. <laughs> so go figure is the, is the, the answer is part of the answer. But I also had played for Outlaws of Red River at MoMA in March during a series that Dave Kerr had put together of new restorations of films that had been produced by Fox and where MoMA has the only or best preservation materials on it. I mean, they've gotten a lot of these uh, preservations, these new restorations, new 4K restorations of, of Fox films done. So I had had a chance to do it sort of a test run, not just musically, but to feel what the film 
felt like with an audience because I had screened it privately at a, in a screening room at MoMA in January, but I knew that feeling how with that journey, what that ride is like with you know, 100, 150 people in the theater was going to definitely inform how it went for me at TCM. And did you have any specific references for these that you're kind of calling upon? I mean, I know, like you said, a lot of it's improvisational, but was there anything different about composing and performing for a Western versus some of the other silent films you, you do? Well, with these films, like it is with any film, the part of what I'm keeping in mind is what the audience's expectations are of the film genre they're watching as well as what they uh they ex what they're expecting of film music in general so i might play things that were that sound like you music you might hear in a western anyway uh so that way the audience is hearing music that they can you know sort of ignore is not maybe the the best word but the idea with any film is to play music that's really it's like comfortable like an old sweater that you put it on and you freak you, you know <laughs> and you you're you're not you're 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 warm in the air can you know you're not too cold in the air conditioning but it's it's an old friend so it's not sticking out so you don't want the music to call attention to itself so maybe at the beginning certainly to let the audience know, hey, we're all watching a Western. You know, I might play something that sounds like Western folk songs might 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 sound just to get people into into the mood. And you may not necessarily need to sustain it throughout the entire uh, five six reels, but that's part that's that's certainly part of it. You know, with any any genre picture. So you know, um, I have the sound in the back of my head of music I know from from watching westerns that were made in the 40s or 50s or 60s and not not playing musical idiom from the time because then it becomes slightly aesthetically jarring to an audience if they're hearing 50s and 60s uh, rhythms and idiom you might feel like oh if I played something that sounds like Copeland but then you're like oh that's he's playing Copeland or oh and that was written in the 50s and so the idea is to try to find a balance and because you're acting as a, a cultural bridge between a 1926 film and a 2019 movie audience. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you have to do to, to sort of cater to a more modern audience or are you just trying to recreate what it would be like in the era? The sort of hybrid of what I'm doing is playing music that sounds like it's from the era or what you would think, but the way films were scored in the 1920s were is very different from the way film scoring is as we know it today and as it became in the mid to late 30s it, in the silent era if you find there are cue sheets that were published which was basically a roadmap of the film they would they would have lines of music and it would say there would be words that would say when you see this happen play this piece for a minute and a half and it would have the first eight or ten bars then when you see uh, this person do this, play this piece for a minute and 45 seconds and then have eight, eight or 10 bars of that. These were, like I said, they were roadmaps. They were never enforced. Nobody sat down with the director and hashed it all out. It went to a separate company. And you can see there are a bunch of these on on a website called the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive or SFSMA or SIFSMA.org. The way scoring happened in the 
teens and 20s, it was a lot more repetitive. You would have a theme that would hit over and over five, six, seven, eight times. There's a lot of music used where the title of the piece mirrored what you were seeing on screen. Not necessarily uh, underscoring the dramatic action. And that's what film music became later after, after sound comes in. And uh, underscore almost disappears for a, a hunk of the early 30s where the scoring techniques, not across the board, but a, a lot of it in the silent era was drawn more from what you might hear in, a mu- in the music hall or vaudeville or stage melodrama. And then what it became later is more drawn from the traditions in opera. And it hasn't really changed. So this is how I approach it. And this is what I learned from Lee Irwin, who was there in the 20s, was is to play uh, music that sounds like it's from the era that the film was made in, but use a scoring technique uh, with light motifs and underscore that's a little bit more from what we know today as as, as far as film scoring, what we expect. Um, you mentioned um, like being open to like a, a someone introducing the film like an Outlaws of Red River. So like would your score the first time you played it at MoMA be very different than what you did at TCM or would you vary them just to keep your interest in it or how do you approach that? Well, I can't remember anything I just played. So you know, oh. even, if they, <laughs> even if they said we're going to hold the next show, we're going to run outlaws again, uh, whatever I played would probably be a little different. My intent for every scene would still be the same unless something had occurred to me during the show that, oh, you know, I could actually make this work better. So, but note for note, it's never, it's never the same. And by improvising, it allows me to constantly improve the score and also tailor it to that particular audience because, you know, a a 2 p.m. Saturday show is going to feel different than an 8 o'clock show uh, that same night or a Wednesday night show. Ask anybody in the theater. There are certain vibes that different audiences have. And and so you have to you have I mean, I have that luxury of, of adjusting things to help the audience, that particular audience, fuse uh, with what's happening on screen. And that's what happened last year when the fire alarm went off halfway through show people. And we all had to leave the theater and slowly say, oh, it's, it's a false alarm. Everybody come back in. The theater organ I use is a virtual instrument that runs off of a laptop and through the house sound system. Uh, with a series of keyboards and pedals. As soon as I heard that the power was back on in the booth, I started playing uh, walk-in music as people were filing in to get back to their seats. And the stage manager came came up to me and whispered in my ear, what do we do? Uh, we were going to start in a couple of minutes. And I just said, don't worry. Just, I'm going to keep playing. And when you when the booth is ready, have them slowly drop, you know, dim the lights and start the film. And I'll and I will just play the audience back into the film. So I had the task of not just picking up right where I left off, but to help the audience aesthetically with their vestibule, especially their right brain, re-enter the world of the film and resume the story, you know, in the middle of real five or wherever we were. I mean, how do you stay focused for that long, both, I mean, mentally and physically? What's, yeah, what's your know. secret? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was hoping you could tell me. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, you know, I I go on the ride with the film and with the audience, and I go on the ride with the audience going on the ride with the film, and until the film and the show is over, I'm I'm just locked into that world. Uh, it's almost like 
this flow where I'm looking at the screen and the film comes into my eyes and my brain. It comes, the music comes out of my hands and back and around and around and around. Uh, and even if there's a breakdown, like the thing with the fire alarm or if the film breaks, um, I will play through that uh, just because the show isn't over, just to keep the momentum going. So I get caught up in, I get ca- caught up in it, whether it's a five reel Tom Mix feature or if it's intolerance or, or anything, I'm not really, sh- it's just something you get used to after, after a while and you don't even notice it. Well, it's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, I have great, I have great material to work with. The two Tom Mix films are, while the stylistic being one is slightly different from the other, they're, they're just so much fun. And you could tell that the people in, in the theater were just really ready to see these films and have a great time, especially going into the second when we'd already seen Great K and A Train Robbery and knew how much fun Tom Mix was. And and I, I don't have you had you seen any of his silent films before? I had not. I had seen uh, Riders of the Purple Sage. I think it's right. the only other one of his films. I'd seen. Yeah, very, yeah, and very few of them survive, and they hardly ever get shown. Right. It's one of these things like you see it and you wonder why aren't they shown more? And so <laughs> by, by the middle of the by the middle of the program, when we had finished Canny Train Robbery, uh, we were just everybody in the room. We were just ready to go on that ride, the next ride with Tom. Tom Mix for the next film, and and it was it was just so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. You could definitely feel that in the audience mm-hmm. that everybody was really into it and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given your wealth of silent film knowledge, are there any other similar films you would recommend to our listeners? Well, if you can find Riders of the Purple Sage, of course. Uh, there's another Tom Mix film called Sky High that survives. I am also a big fan of William S. Hart. The tricky thing with William S. Hart is that very few of his films are available in quality releases uh there is one that's out on blu-ray from olive films called wagon tracks with a very nice score by andrew simpson that was uh, put out a few years ago in a new 2k scan off of very good material by the library of congress as big a star as he was and important an influence as he was it's really hard to find a william s hart film in a really good transfer there's a lot of things out there that are on the budget labels with sort of needle drop music and transfers uh, from an old 16 millimeter print. But there's a, there the William S. Hart films are really good. If you can find them, there are Hoot Gibson Westerns that are, he's a lot of fun as well. A lot of his films, because they're made for Universal, only survive in 16 millimeter prints. Uh, But there are some uh, DVD labels like Grapevine that may have some of those available. Art Accord is another Western star, Ken Maynard, if you can find any of any of those. But I I'd say if you can find Hoot Gibson and and especially William S Hart, uh, those those are a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean yeah. we we live in Southern California and you see all kinds of monuments and museums to these people, but you just don't get a chance to see their movies. Yeah, right. Unfortunately. Right. Yeah, and, and there's some and there's some John Ford westerns as well. I I don't know how available they are there, uh, but there are, there's some of his stuff as well. And if you if it's not available on a home video, if you know if you hear. Uh, that any of these their, these uh, stars films are being shown somewhere go yeah, yeah yeah I mean you're preaching to the choir about John Ford here so <laughs> right. yeah, I've, seen, sure. I've seen a few of his, of his Harry Carey silent westerns and yeah. like the Iron Horse and Three Bad Men and, and yeah those, those yeah. are great those are great fun yeah I think that about wraps it up for us is there anything else you're working on that you'd like to share or anything else you'd like to add I have just released a, a two disc set of Alice Howell comedies 
look for the Alice Howell collection on Amazon or any place else that sells DVDs. Her films haven't been seen in about 100 years, 90 to 100 years. She was a wow, comedy wow. slapstick comedy star. She did knockabout slapstick like all the guys did. Uh, she's charming and hilarious. And the response so far to these have been really, really great. I'm looking now at, at uh, coming up with some ideas for new DVD projects, but I have nothing uh, locked in just yet. But uh, people can go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I have a podcast about silent film music. Uh, I'm, I'm, all, I'm eminently findable, but so find, sign up for my emails. You know, I'm, every, I'm on everything but Snapchat and Reddit, which I can't figure out. If you want to see what I'm up to, uh, follow me on all, any of those places. You know, if you've never seen a silent film uh, and you hear that there's one going to be shown somewhere and there's going to be live music, just ignore the word silent. That might be putting you off. <laughs> yeah. Just drag yourself past the word silent because it's gonna it's way more fun you than you th- you think it's gonna be. And go. It's right. an experience for sure. Yeah. It really is. Well, thank you so much. Um, like I said, we were a big fan of your performance and, and all the work you're yeah, doing really in restoration. It. And we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. So it's silentfilmmusic.com and undercrankproductions.com. All right. And what's your what's your podcast called? It's called the, the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. All right. All right. Thanks again to Ben Modell for joining us. You can find him on social media and be sure to check out his website as well as Undercrank Productions and his podcast Silent Film Music a podcast by Ben Modell. So to kind of wrap things up, um, do you want to just talk about what influence Tom Mix has had sort of overall on the Western? Sure. I think, like we mentioned earlier about his sort of wardrobe look, I think, and its Mm -hmm. influence. His movies were very much white hat versus black hat, you know, kind of simplistic, simple storytelling style. And I think that was sort of the influence on the Saturday matinee Western Mm -hmm. that thrived through the 30s and 40s, I guess. I loved a quote he had about his sort of philosophy to making these movies. He said, I try to make the pictures so that when a boy pays, say, 20 cents to see it, he will get 20 cents worth, not 10. If I drop, you see, it would be like putting my hand in his pocket and stealing a dime. Wow. <laughs> and I, I think he fulfills. He's got he does. The, the thrills that w- will sure to please every time. He definitely delivers uh, on that area. If you're looking for nuanced storytelling, this is not the guy for you, but... If you just want thrills and excitement and fun, I think Tom Hanks is great. Yeah. I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed both of the f- films that we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you, is the idea of creating this Western village to shoot on Mixville, is that, was that fairly revolutionary? With the increase in his personal fortune, there came also an increase in his business assets. The Fox Film Company was well aware of the importance of Tom Mix to their studio, and they constructed a special studio complex designed strictly for Westerns. The location was near Edendale, California, and it was called Mixville. Within its fence was anything a Western producer could want. There was a frontier town with a jail, saloon, and dusty street. Nearby was an Indian village and a stretch of make-believe desert. To Mixville came visitors, including this group of dignitaries as a kind of early-day Disneyland. Often they were treated to an exhibition of Western riding and shooting, For Tom still craved the applause of the crowd and spent endless hours practicing so that he might receive it. 
You know, I think it probably was. I don't know that they had studio, like studio backlash. Yeah, at that point with Western towns and that kind of thing. I mean, because um, they could use this for other films as well, I'm sure. Other yeah, of course. Yeah, that. maybe. I'm not really, I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, I think it probably was one of the first. But I think like the kind of movies that uh, John Wayne was making in the 30s um, at Republic and other studios, they were just kind of, you know, B, even C grade Westerns. I think those are the kind of influence of Tom Mix. That was the dominant form of the Western, you know, it's sort of, it was just sort of thought of as kitty fair i think for a long mm-hmm. time until stagecoach in 1939 which made it more of an adult and respectable genre again you know but the western has had ups and downs throughout yeah i think the the whole genre is a constant ebb and flow in right. popularity <laughs> and critical reception and and i think a lot of that has to do with sort of the saturation of the market i mean yeah how many films does tom mix make like over 300? almost 300 yeah or, yeah or around 300 yeah. yeah so you have that many and maybe 10 years yeah. or something that's pretty ridiculous and he's not the only cowboy star out there right. so you know it's a lot a lot of uh content. and then as you say when you get stagecoach then you get a huge influx of movies in the 40s and 50s right right into the 60s <laughs> yeah and then it begins to wane and then again, it wanes and, again yeah. and you know and you have the spaghetti westerns yeah. and then the revisionist western and and yeah and now it's just sort of a a prestige film mm-hmm. that comes out every now and then generally yeah. you know i wonder if we get again a lot more television westerns yeah. now if the same thing will happen as it did in the 50s with all of those western shows if it will we'll get sick of the west we'll see if you know westworld or anything influences <laughs> I, I think also another influence mix had was maybe in in just the, the idea of all this merchandise yes true that you could get the comic books the toys right. the lunchbox right. the the pocket knife and you'll see that definitely later in Hopalong cassidy and roy rogers and For gene sure. autry the lone ranger and even john wayne had stuff and you and know. just using the pennies from the kids yes to, to sort of really fuel your 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 empire yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then you see that later with, like, George Lucas and Star Wars. That's true, that's true. My other favorite fact about Tom Mix is that it was the favorite film star of Jed Clampett. (laughs) And I think that says a lot, that Jed's just a simple country guy, but makes it to Hollywood just like Tom. Yep. (laughs) And, of course, we saw Tom Mix's hat in uh, the Lone Pine Museum. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Famous Western location. Yeah, Uh, be sure to check out the Lone Pine Museum. Yeah. I would like to give more shout-outs to it because it's a really cool place. It is, yeah. In the Alabama hills there where so many a, great westerns so, were shot. Yeah, so many. It's a great location. Yeah. I'm sure you can see Ken Maynard's hat there. <laughs> All the greats. You name it. So I guess that uh, wraps it up for this episode. So we'll be back um, soon with another western or two. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what we have. So, so long from me, Felicity. And me, Clarence. And the spirit of Hoot Gibson. Nice. Adios. Last night I was watching Old Tom Mix. My TV broke. I was in a fix. I got on the phone, called my man, said, Get here, daddy, as fast as you can.